Well, welcome to all of you here at Central Campus, um, <clears throat> plus those of you who are tuning in online and also those of you who are tuning in from one of our regional campuses in uh, Airdrie, Bridgeland, and uh, the Crowfoot Theatres in Northwest Calgary. We do greet you in the name of the Lord. You know, uh, over the years I have had the privilege of performing hundreds of wedding ceremonies and typically when I meet with the couple uh, prior to the wedding day, they are smitten with romance, convinced that their marriage is not only going to survive, but it's going to thrive. I can't recall a time um, uh, when uh, one of them confiding that the person that they were marrying uh, was trouble. Uh, or that their marriage was going to be miserable and end up in failure. No, in all of my years as a pastor, it is never, that, that has never happened before the wedding day. But it has happened a number of times after the wedding day. Sometimes it was a month or two after the wedding, sometimes a year or two. But this time, when they walked into my office, the vibes were significantly different. They weren't lovesick anymore, they were just sick, and mostly of each other. Like one fellow said, when I got married, I started out with an ideal, a few months later it turned into an ordeal, and now I'm looking for a new deal. <clears throat> Some of you are at this place in your marriage right now. You are struggling in your marriage and perhaps thinking of separating or possibly even divorce. Some of you are hurting so bad that the last thing you want to hear is someone like me to challenge you to pause and to reconsider your plans in light of what the Bible has to say about all of this. But you see in our study in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, it is Jesus who brings up this subject of divorce. And in so doing, he takes us into all the emotions and the pain surrounding it. And whether we are single, happily married, divorced, or contemplating divorce, I believe that Jesus has something he wants to say to us in times like this, providing that we come to him with an open hand, with an open mind, and with a humble heart. Now last week we uncovered not only what Jesus had to say about divorce, but also what he had to say about God's ideal for marriage. And so I want to encourage you to get the CD of that message because it really provides the biblical context and background for today's message. And these two messages really need to be seen as one message in two parts. Now in the same way that I challenged singles and married people last week to hold high God's ideal for marriage, in this message, as I promised, I want to challenge those who are struggling in their marriage to also seek to hold high God's ideal for marriage. And I want to do that by having you reflect on three questions. The first is this. Have you counted the cost involved in ending your marriage? Malachi chapter 2 says that God hates divorce, not only because he highly values marriage and hates anything that defiles or ends a marriage, but also as our loving Heavenly Father, he wants to spare us the high cost and pain associated with divorce. Divorce like marriage should not be entered into lightly. It should not be done flippantly or on a whim because the cost is much higher than most people realize. 
aside from the financial impact which uh, inevitably comes with divorce, Greg Lafferty points out that based on the research, on average, a divorce will sap 85% of a woman's energy just to keep an emotional even keel through the day. Divorce will cut her standard of living by two-thirds. It will make her angrier, more aggressive, and violent with her children. And it will produce in her more anxiety, worry, depression for as long as a decade following the divorce. When it comes to men, on average, divorce makes a man two times more likely to have heart problems, three times more likely to commit suicide, seven times more likely to contract pneumonia, and ten times more likely to die suddenly at any given age. And then there are the effects on the children. Typically, children of divorce experience more depression and more anger. They have more health problems, relational problems, school problems. They experience more alcohol abuse, drug abuse, and tobacco use. They experience more delinquency and more crime, more teen sex, and also teen pregnancy. Now, I realize this is all very bad news and painful to hear, particularly on the part of those who are already divorced. But in this message, I'm not talking to those of you who are divorced. I'm actually talking to those of you who are contemplating divorce. The focus isn't on our past. It is on our future. It is not on what was or even what is in the present, but on what can be in the future by God's grace. But if you are thinking about ending your marriage, one of the first things you need to do is to give serious consideration to the cost of doing so. The second question is, what is your heart motivation for wanting out of your marriage? You see, in his Sermon on the Mount, here in Matthew 5, Jesus' overarching theme is, while our outward behavior matters to God, he is first and foremost concerned with what's going on inside, in our hearts. In chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus says, you may think that you have kept the sixth commandment perfectly because you haven't gone out and actually murdered someone. But I tell you, murder doesn't start with a knife or a gun. Murder starts in your heart and mind when you allow anger and resentment to fester and to grow in your life. In verse 27, Jesus says the same is true with respect to adultery. You can commit adultery fully dressed or without ever touching someone. And that's because adultery starts in the mind and heart when you allow lust to have its way in your life. In verse 31, Jesus gives another example and says the same principle applies with respect to divorce. A divorce doesn't start with signing divorce papers. No, a divorce starts in the heart and mind. It starts when in your heart you deliberately begin to invest positive energy away from your marriage and into another relationship. In fact, that is exactly what Jesus was getting at and addressing when he said in verse 31, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate 
of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, and it's as if he could say at that point flippantly, because that's what was happening. But what he wanted to point out is, if anyone divorces his wife except for sexual immorality on her part, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let me give you the context to that. You see, what was happening in Jesus' day is a man would find a woman who was more attractive or more exciting than his wife, and so he would come up with a lame excuse to justify divorcing his wife for the sole purpose of being able to marry the woman that he was lusting after. This practice was so common in that day that the ancient world was in danger of witnessing the almost total collapse of marriage and the home. And Jesus essentially says to the men of his day and to any man or woman in our day who is similarly motivated, you may fool others into believing that you are justified to divorce your spouse and to marry another person, but God knows your heart. He knows the real reason why you're doing this and you're not fooling him. Now let me be very clear at this point. As humans, we are not in a position to judge someone else's heart motivation. That is God's business because only God knows the true state of a person's heart and why a person makes the decisions that they make. Unless a person flat out tells you what their motivation is, we must not go there even if we think we know or suspect what their motivation is. That's none of our business. Let me explain it to you this way. Suppose a man or a woman is a model of integrity in public. Committing adultery is the last thing that he or she would do. People look at them and they just admire them as, very, as people of integrity, of character, and godliness. But at home, behind closed doors, he is a brute. He is sadistically cruel and demanding. The world revolves around him and his needs. Or perhaps he terrorizes his spouse or children regularly with physical abuse. Or perhaps he has an addiction to alcohol, drugs, or pornography. He won't admit he has a problem, and his addictions are unraveling not only his marriage, but his family's peace and safety and finances. Or maybe it's the wife who is doing this. She's extremely selfish and a control freak, never satisfied, always negative and complaining always criticizing her husband for his shortcomings and blaming him for her misery. He feels like he's a loser, like he can do no right in her eyes. Whatever the issue, she makes life a hell for those who live with her. And she either doesn't see it or refuses to deal with it. And yet in the mind of everyone else that she knows at work, at church, in the community, she is a wonderful person. You see, this is an example of why we are not in a position to judge a person's motivation. Only God knows their heart and the reason that they're making the decisions that they are. But having said that, I want to turn the tables for a moment 
and ask if you are the person today who is wanting or considering ending your marriage. What would God say your true motivation is? Jesus says you may fool your pastor, you may fool your friends, but you won't fool me. You know, over the years I've talked with men and women who long after their marriage was over felt great remorse for <clears throat> their part in the divorce. They admitted that <clears throat> their idol at the time was to be happy. And they figured that marriage was going to make them happy. And of course their marriage partner was going to be key to making them happy. And so when she perceived that he wasn't totally dedicated to making her happy, or when he found someone more exciting, they began to check out mentally, emotionally, even physically, from the marriage relationship. They didn't want to be the bad person by ending the marriage, and so they just stopped investing in the marriage. They stopped communicating. They deliberately spent more time at work and with friends from work. They became angry. They became hypercritical of their spouse, secretly hoping that their spouse would leave them or divorce them or have an affair. Now, if I'm describing your heart motivation, even in part, then what I have to say next applies to you. If you want out of your marriage but you want to make it, appear, make it appear that the problem is your spouse, that you're really the innocent victim, when you know that you aren't lifting a finger to make your marriage better, but in fact are hoping and intentionally doing things to kill your marriage, you may fool others, but God sees the deception in your heart. And I need to tell you folks that God doesn't bless deception. God doesn't bless hypocrisy and blatant sin. Listen to what the prophet Malachi says to the people of Israel in Malachi 2.13. You weep and wail because he, referring to God, no longer pays attention to your offerings and accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Now the Apostle Peter adds to this saying in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, I just need to um, point out that these scriptures were often directed to men because they were written in the context of a patriarchal society. But they really can be applied, of course, to men and women. Always remember that. Malachi and Peter say, you want to know why God doesn't accept your worship? Why God isn't hearing your prayers? It's because you aren't being faithful to your marriage vows. You're mistreating your spouse. You aren't loving him or her the way you did at first. 
And God who witnessed the covenant that you made with your spouse takes exception to that. If you think that you can ignore God's command to love your spouse and instead treat your spouse like a kitchen appliance, if you think you can act like the Lord is blind and powerless and discard your spouse like yesterday's trash for someone else, you're mistaken because God opposes the proud. He doesn't bless or hear the prayers of those who trample on and mistreat their spouse. Friends, God did not institute marriage solely to make us happy. That may disappoint some of you. But that is not the main reason why he instituted marriage. He instituted marriage to make us godly. He instituted the church to make us godly. To make us more like himself. Not that God has anything against happiness or that happiness and godliness are mutually exclusive. It's just that if happiness is my goal for marriage, and you see what happens is my rights and my needs and my concerns take center stage. It's all about me. It's all about my happiness. The world revolves around me. And friends, self-centeredness is very destructive to any relationship, including marriage. On the other hand, if the goal of my life and the goal of my marriage is godliness rather than happiness, then the focus changes from pleasing myself to actually pleasing God and pleasing others, including my spouse. And so instead of seeing every difficulty, every conflict that I have in my marriage, every negative quality in my spouse as cause for me to gnash my teeth and to wail, woe is me, I must get out of this situation, I can actually see these challenges as an opportunity for me to grow in godliness and in my character. Romans 8.28 says that God will use all things that we surrender and commit to him including the good and bad in my spouse and the hardships and the differences and the disappointments in our marriage relationship to accomplish good in my life, to grow my character, my faith in him, and to make me more like Jesus if I am open to him in that. And so let me help you accept um, uh, reality right now. I want all of you who are married to repeat after me. I am not married to a perfect person, and I'm glad. Ready? (laughs) I am not married to a perfect person, and I'm glad. Doesn't that feel good just getting it off your chest? Absolutely. Friends, I want to challenge you to stop dreaming about what life might be like with some other person and to start loving and investing in the person that God gave you. A third question I have for those wanting out of, uh, those wanting out of your marriage is this. How committed are you to making your marriage work? In Matthew 19, verse 6, Jesus says, Therefore, what God has joined together let man not separate. In other words, Jesus is saying, you can't take something that God in the spiritual realm has glued together or made one flesh and tear it apart for just any flippant reason. 
Jesus challenges us to honor God by doing all we can to honor the covenant of marriage. Research tells us that 83% of marriages that fail do so because of a basic lack of commitment. Now again, we're not talking here about continuing to live with a spouse who is physically abusing you or a spouse who's making your home life a living hell because of some out-of-control addiction or destructive habit. People like this need to get help and find healing, and their spouses have every right to separate from them and to stay separated until they have clear evidence that their spouse is well. I'm talking about all the marriages that unravel because of old-fashioned pride and stubbornness and just plain selfishness. I'm talking about the couple that says, we just don't love each other anymore. It's no thrill being together. We're not on the same wavelength. Marriage is not like I dreamed it to be. I feel disappointed most of the time. We're married and we're miserable. Now a marriage without good feelings is terribly incomplete. And couples in this state should see it as a warning sign that there is something in their marriage that they need to address. But neither should they conclude that their marriage is over because they lack feelings for one another. It's okay to want to feel in love, but this idea that the emotion of love should just happen or that you married the wrong person because you have to work hard at keeping love alive in your marriage, that is a myth that is propagated by Hollywood and the pit of hell. Folks, please, let's give our heads a shake and get realistic about marriage. A good marriage is going to cost you all that you've got and then some. It's going to require that you put the interests and the needs of your spouse ahead of yourself in all things. Now, is it just me? Or would you agree that that just doesn't come naturally or easily? That cuts against the grain of my self-centeredness. A good marriage, like any healthy relationship, requires constant self-denial, humbling myself. It requires discipline, patience, hard work, and everything in me fights against that. But that's the truth. I'm always fighting for my will to be done rather than for Gwen's will to be done. Gwen, by the way, is my wife case you were wondering. But you see, folks, that's reality. And the sooner we kill this syrupy, airy, fairy, butterfly kisses, it's all just going to happen magically, notion of marriage, and accept the fact that a great marriage will cost us everything, the healthier our marriages are going to be. Can you say amen to that? The truth is, it is only when we love our spouse the way that God loves us that we're going to experience the fruit of that love in our feelings. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus teaches about the nature of love. And he differentiates between human love and divine love. 
invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. In verse 32, Jesus describes human love this way. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Jesus says, you know, it's easy to love those who love you. But that kind of love is human love. Human love is a feeling. It finds its motivation from receiving love from others. You do good to those who do good to you. In marriage, human love says, if you are nice to me, well, then I'll be nice to you. As long as I'm attracted to you, as long as I can be proud of you, as long as you serve me and you meet my needs, well, I'll love you back. But if you change, well, then my love for you changes. That's human love. And you know, if everyone lived and loved perfectly, marriages and life in general would be wonderful. The problem is, we're not perfect. And we live in a sinful and a broken world. And human love is not strong enough to weather the challenges that life and that imperfect people are going to throw at us. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, meaning not everyone will love you perfectly, if at all. And not everything will go as you hoped and dreamed. For example, your looks and the looks of your spouse will change with the passing of time. We can use all the, screen, all the skin creams we want in the world. The reality is it's only going to be a matter of time. Our, hay, our hair will gray and will fall out. Our chests will drop. Our skin will sag and our butts will drag. But all that to say, folks, we will face disappointments in life, including our dreams for marriage, our dreams for a certain lifestyle, our dreams for family life. And when life throws those curves at us, we're going to need a whole lot more than human love. And in verse 27, Jesus says, essentially, you're going to need God's love. This is what he says, but I tell you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Jesus says that God's love is so deep and durable that it even loves enemies. Divine love endures even when a spouse begins to feel more like an enemy than a friend. And you see, that's because human love is a feeling that focuses on what the other person is doing or isn't doing, whereas divine love is a decision that focuses on my responsibility and on me remaining faithful to my marriage vows. Divine love says, rather than trying to change you into being the kind of person I can love, I will focus my attention on being the kind of person that you can love. Divine love is based on a covenant. 
and not a contract. See, far too many people today see marriage as a contract, kind of a 50-50 proposition. As long as you hold up your end of the deal, I'll hold up my end of the deal. Again, that is human love in contract form. A marriage that's based on divine love is a covenant. In a covenant, we die to ourselves and we give 100% not expecting anything in return. And that's what Paul meant when he said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Paul died to himself, even as Jesus refused to assert his rights and he freely chose to die on the cross for you and for me. When we die to ourselves, to our pride and to our rights, we begin to love with a divine love. We love unconditionally, no matter if our spouse loves us back or not, because we've died to ourselves. Now again, in all of this, I'm, I'm not saying that this means that you become a doormat for a spouse to abuse and to walk all over. I'm not talking about the eradication of our personality, of, uh, you know, of, of our own dreams and desires. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is having a, guide, a godly mindset, a divine love that refuses to define my happiness in marriage on the basis of what my spouse can do for me and instead, by God's grace, focusing on what I can do for my spouse. In March of 1990, Dr. McKilkin president of Columbia Bible College, resigned from his position in order to care for his wife, Muriel, who suffered from the advanced ravages of Alzheimer's disease. In his resignation letter, he said the decision to care for her was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and health till death do us part. But there is more, he writes. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. I do not have to care for her. I get to. You know, such a beautiful Christ-like love did not just happen. Came from the inner resolve of a husband who determined 42 years before to enter into a covenant with the love of his life and to die to self and to love his wife with a divine love. You say, there is no way I can love like that. And you are right, of course, because in ourselves, none of us can love like that. In his book, A Promise Kept, McKilkin goes on to explain where his love comes from by telling us of an incident that he and his wife had while they were traveling. He writes, Once our flight was delayed in Atlanta, we had to wait a couple of hours. Now that's a challenge. Every few minutes, the same questions, the same answers about what we're doing here and when we're going home. And every few minutes, we'd take a fast-paced walk down the terminal in earnest search of what? Muriel had always been a speedwalker, 
I had to jog to keep up with her. An attractive woman executive type sat across from us working diligently on her computer. Once when we returned from one of our excursions, she said something without looking up from her papers. And since no one else was nearby, I assumed she had spoken to me or at least mumbled in protest of our constant activity. And so I said, pardon me? Oh, she said, I was just asking myself, will I ever find a man to love me like that? And McKilkin turned to her and said, Oh yes, you can find a man like that because I found a man like that. And his name is Jesus. I love my wife the way that you see me loving her because the man Jesus first loved me like this. The only resources I have to draw upon to love my wife the way that I do are the resources that he gives me. See, we don't need God's help to love what's lovely. We don't need God's help and God's love to love the person who's easy to love. But we so need God to love the person who feels like an enemy to us or the person who feels like a burden to us. the person that we'd naturally just want to abandon. The truth is, God never intended for us to love like this in our own human strength. No, God wants to live out his love through us, and he will. But that requires that we invite him to live in us so that he can live his life through us. And so with all that in mind, I want to leave you with three challenges. First of all, I want to challenge you to give your life totally to God. You know, my observation is is that when a marriage starts breaking down, a lot of couples are, they're looking for a formula. They're looking for five easy steps. They're looking for ten techniques to fix their marriage. Now, there's a place for that. But a healthy marriage isn't found in a prescription. It is found in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, you can't give what you don't have. You can't love your spouse with a godly love if you don't have the love of Jesus residing in you. I challenge you to to open, I mean really open your life to Jesus and embrace him with all of your heart. John 1.12 says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. When you humble yourself and by faith you ask Jesus to invade your life, he will do just that. And the Bible says he will empower you and he will begin to live his life of love and joy and peace and, uh, and, and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and goodness and self-control through you. 
And that will not only change you, but it will change everything. Your marriage, all of your relationships will never be the same again because you will never be the same again. And secondly, I want to challenge you not only to give your life to God, but to follow the ways of God. Take his words seriously. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 5, 1, we read this, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The Apostle Paul says here, the key to healthy relationships is to follow the ways of Christ, to love as Jesus did. And you know, all the way through the Gospels and through the entire New Testament, we read again and again that the way of Jesus is not the way of resentment and anger and bitterness. All the way through the New Testament, we read that the way of Jesus is not self-seeking. It does not demand its own way. Rather, Christ's way is to speak the truth in love. The way of Jesus is to be compassionate and kind and gentle and patient and faithful. The way of Jesus is to respect and honor one another. The way of Jesus is to submit to one another in love, out of love for Christ. The way of Jesus is to serve without thought of receiving in return. Now again, I'm not talking about perfection here because we will blow it again and again. I'm talking about the direction of our lives. Our eyes are on Jesus. We're walking toward Jesus. Our hearts are surrendered to him and are committed to following him and to reflecting his heart in and through us. And then finally, I want to challenge you to trust in the life-changing power of God. Some of you right now can't imagine things ever changing for the better in your marriage. But let me ask you, do you believe that God is powerful enough to change your marriage? I mean, if God can radically change an adulterer like King David, if God can change the hard and the hateful heart of a murderer, like the Apostle Paul formerly called Saul. Can we believe that God can change the heart of our spouse? Can we say what Job said during the worst of circumstances, Oh Lord, I know that you can do all things. You know, folks, I have given myself to full-time ministry because I believe that God can radically change a person from the inside out. I mean, we may as well shut down our worship services, our ministries, our small groups, our home churches, uh, and, and just board up this place if we no longer believe that God is in the people-changing business. But I know that he is. Not only because the Bible tells me so, because he's changed me. I know that he is because over the past Many years I've seen him change hundreds of lives. And so have you. 
if Jesus has been doing that down through time, why can't he do it in the life of your spouse that you're thinking of giving up on? You know, a statistic that just rocked my world when I read it is that two out of every three divorced people say that they could have worked harder to save their marriage. Two out of three could have worked harder, they say. I challenge you not to live with that regret if you're on that pathway at all. I challenge you not to sit there and wait for your spouse to act first. No, you step out and do what God's calling you to do. Call out to God for his help as you never had have before. Ask him to give you the love, the creativity to demonstrate your love for your spouse in at least one way every day. Go to God as a couple and ask him to show you whether your priorities as a couple, whether the passions that you are pursuing in your life are really worth giving your life to and are really strengthening your marriage and family as opposed to slowly destroying it. So many marriages are boring and lifeless because couples are chasing after lesser things, things that won't matter a hill of beans in the end. Rather than making a difference in the lives of others in the name of Jesus, pray for your spouse that God would transform his or her heart. And if God has hardened your heart against your spouse, pray that he would soften your heart. I challenge you to confess any resentment and bitterness and that God would change your heart attitude and that he would show you where you need to humble yourself, where you need to deal with stuff that's contributing to the breakdown of your marriage and that you will resolve to get the help that you need. God is more than able to do what concerns you today and he will not only respond to your earnest, persistent prayers, but he will also bless you for your obedience to him and for not giving up when the going gets tough. You know, my wife, Gwen, and I, we have a wonderful marriage. But, but that doesn't mean that we don't have our moments. On almost any given day, we can be short with each other. We can get our backs up. We can stonewall each other. But no matter what happens, we both have made a firm decision to forgive each other, to make things right as quickly as possible and definitely before we go to sleep at night. We've made a decision never to give up on our marriage. In fact, we've made a decision not to settle for a mediocre marriage, but for our marriage to be all God wants it to be. Not just because that's what God would want for us, but also because our marriage and our family is worth fighting for. It's worth investing in. It's worth making it the best it can be to the glory of God. And we've determined to give our lives to the eternal things of God. Because we know when our lives are centered on Jesus and the mission that he has called us to, our marriage will never be dull or boring, but full of the adventures of God as he uses us to make a difference in the lives of other people. And our prayer is, is that all of you couples who make up our church family will make the same commitment to each other and to God because one day you'll be so glad you did. I'm going to close with this. 
And John Ortberg received this letter from a husband. He was referring to his wife, and he writes this. She was pregnant with our third child when I left her. I was bored with marriage. I wanted excitement and my freedom back. She will manage somehow, I told myself. The God that she always talked about will have to just pick up the pieces for her. I was going to enjoy my one and only life and party as hard as I could to make up for my lost years in my 10-year marriage. After the divorce, I was shocked to discover that she was seeing someone else and more shocked that I was experiencing feelings of jealousy and anxiety over the fact. I started coming to your church thinking I might get her attention. I was not above manipulation to get what I wanted. To my dismay, she didn't seem to care what I was doing. Over the next few months, the bottom dropped out of my world and I began to suffer. It occurred to me that what I was feeling was probably only a fraction of what she had been feeling for years. I started attending the marital restoration workshop by myself at the church and I began to see the real me, arrogant, calculating, self-centered, manipulative and cruel. I broke apart when I saw all the pain that I had caused. Over the next year, with lots of new friends from the church walking beside me, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I experienced humility, gratitude, and God's grace for the first time in my life. Over time, my ex-wife noticed the changes in me. Everyone did. It took her a while to believe the changes in me were genuine. We were remarried four years ago and we have a whole new life together. I know that our story is rare, but if I can change, anyone can. I love my wife, I love my children, and I'm so grateful for a second chance to do life differently. Now friends, I know that not every story is going to end like this one. I stand before you as one who did everything that I could as a teenager to somehow get my mom and dad back together and it didn't happen. It was one of the saddest days of my life. But despite all of this, I want to say to you, to those of you who are struggling and contemplating ending your marriage, I want to say to you, there are so many reasons to fight for your marriage. So many reasons to say, I will forgive. So many reasons to say, I will love. I will respect. I will humble myself and trust Jesus and begin to invest all that I have in my marriage rather than seeking a way out. And of this I am certain. Your story will end well if you will put your life in the hand of God and if you will love as he loves you. For he is the God of the second chance. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? You cannot give love that you do not have. 
Jesus wants to come into your life. And he wants to live his life of love through you. He wants to be your best friend. He wants to heal your marriage. But for that to happen, you need to remove yourself from the center of the universe. And you need to make Jesus your Lord and King and put him at the center of the universe, which is where he rightfully belongs. And love him and follow him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You see, friend, it isn't about you. Life isn't about you. Life is about Jesus. My question is, have you done that? Not have you prayed a prayer or come to an altar of prayer. No, I'm asking, have you truly surrendered your life, your dreams, and your ambitions to him? Have you acknowledged and repented your pride of your anger, of your stubbornness, of your resentment, your self-righteousness to him? If you'd like to open the door of your life to him, if you'd like to confess these things that I just mentioned a moment ago, I'm going to invite you to pray along with me right now. Just pray along silently because Jesus, he sees your heart. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me even when I was unlovely. Thank you for forgiving me and extending grace to me even when I was totally unworthy. Thank you for pursuing me and not giving up on me even when I was running from you and ignoring you. Thank you for enduring the pain, the abuse, the scorn and the ridicule in my place on the cross. Lord, I recognize my need of you. I repent of my sin, including my pride, my anger, resentment. And I ask, Lord, that you would come into my life. I want to be your friend. I want to follow you from this moment forward. And Jesus, I want you to know that I'm all in. With your help and by your grace, I intend to love others, my spouse, my family, my friends, my neighbors, even my enemies, with the same love that you have extended to me. And so I ask that you would now fill me with your spirit and with your amazing love that you would live your life of love, joy, and peace through me. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Now, friend, if you prayed that prayer, the Bible says that something very dramatic has happened in the spiritual realm, that you are a new creation, not because you're perfect, but because you have Jesus in you. The old is gone, the new has come. Because you asked in faith, Jesus is now living in you. And as you continue to humble yourself and follow him daily, he will begin to live his life through you. And your life and your relationships will never be the same again. As we close this service, if you prayed that prayer a moment ago, I want to give you the opportunity to make a public declaration, including a declaration to your spouse declaration to your family and to others that Jesus is your Savior and Lord, that you have a new King, you have a new Lord, and that you will never be the same again.
going to stand an invitation for you just to make your way up here, just to stand up here, because at the end, I just want to pray with you. But I want to encourage you to have the courage to get up out of your seat and to make your way up here. If you're up in the chapel or at one of the other campuses, just make your way to the front of the room that you're at, just so that I can pray with you. This is going to take courage, but I'm going to invite you to do that. Just come right now while we wait. Just get up. The people will let you come. Just come on up here. You know, and in a moment, I'll just pray with you. whether your spouse is with you or not, I'm just going to ask you to stand right now because I also want to pray for you. Would you stand? If you feel as a couple you want to make your way up here, you do that. I'm just going to pray for you at the end. But before I pray, I want you to just face your spouse. And I want you to ask your spouse to forgive you. And I want you to tell them whatever else God has laid on your heart. I know that you won't be able to do all of that in the next minute or two, but I want you to take a moment and just begin the conversation that you're going to conclude after this service. But just talk to her, talk to him about whatever's on your heart. Just take a moment and do that right now. If your spouse isn't here, you take this time to pray for your spouse and that you would have the courage to ask them to forgive you and to talk to them whatever God's laid on your heart. Just do that right now. We'll just take a moment for that and then I'm going to close in prayer. pray. Our Heavenly Father, in a world that is so so messed up when it comes to relationships, I want to thank you for your clear teaching on how to have healthy relationships and healthy marriages. Thank you for showing us what love is by dying on the cross for each one of us. 
Thank you for invading our lives when we asked that you would in faith, for transforming us by living your life through us. Lord, I pray for those who just invited you to come into their lives. I pray that you would give them an extra measure of your grace, of your love, and you would help them to begin to love and treasure their spouse and other people as you intended them to do from the beginning. And Lord, I pray for every marriage represented in this place. Lord, that you would fill them with your love, joy, peace, and hope. I pray where there is hurt, that you would bring healing. Where there is resentment, that there would be forgiveness. Where there is discouragement, I pray, oh God, that you would bring hope. I pray that you would bless each marriage and family, Lord, with your gentleness and kindness and patience and faithfulness and goodness and self-control, and that you will use them wherever it is they are to point others to Jesus, the Jesus that we know and love. For I pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. Would the rest of you stand, please? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. And you're going out and in your coming in. In your lying down and rising up. In your labor and in your leisure. In your laughter and in your tears until you come to stand before Jesus in that day in which there is no sunset or dawning. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.